Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, the New Book Network series. I'm Harry Y.J. Wu, uh, Associate Professor at National Chenggong University in Taiwan. I'm a historian of medicine. And today we have Dr. Yi Tang Lin with us. Uh, she is the assistant professor at the history department at Zurich University. And she is also a Swiss National Scientific Foundation Prima Professor. Today we are going to talk about her new book. Uh, the title is Statistics and the Language of Global Health, Institutions and Experts in China, Taiwan and the World. In this book, Yitang traces the historical process during which statistics the applied mathematical science became the foundation of global health. The science involves the collection, description, analysis, and interference of mainly quantitative data gathered from the extremely diverse world map across the interwar period and post-World War II period. In this book, she examines the efforts made by public health experts, philanthropic sectors and the international organizations. They worked in concert to transform numbers into a common language for public health. The, the book is published in 2022 and which is a uh, open access book now uh, already receiving a lot of praises and so let's welcome Yitang and can you uh, briefly introduce yourself to us? Hi, um, thank you so much, Harry, for inviting me to uh, give me this opportunity to talk a little bit more about my book. So I am Yitan Ling. I am a history uh, professor. I am, um, my trajectory is pretty um, complicated. So put it briefly, I'm trained in sociology, anthropology, and history in my undergrad and graduate years. And now I am a historian looking into international organizations' history and how they change the ways that we use science and technology. Okay, so uh, can you let us know 
why you decided to write this book? Yes, um, it's a very long story. I, I think for every book, it's the same. But um, it is actually a book based on my PhD uh, dissertation. At that time, I was recruited by a Swiss university, University of Lausanne, to work something on the history of the World Health Organization. So when I was um, trying to find a topic, I started to look into the publications of the WHO, and I realized that in most of the WHO publications, we see that almost every opening paragraph is always about the uses of number. It's, a, it's always about statistics. So how many years, how many people suffer from this and that. And that is the reason for which I got very curious about why, why we started to use statistics and how we somehow have this common trust towards numbers. So that's the beginning of my research. And then I realized that things are much more complicated than I thought in the first place. So yeah, so eventually it comes out with this book, which with a very uh, complicated title, as you just said. Yeah. Right. Okay. The title, it reads a little bit politicized. Oh, right. really? Okay. Well, for me, I mean, but actually, uh, we can never say that a statistics or numbers are unpoliticized or depoliticized, uh, right? Um, because now this is really timely that we wrote this book because we are in the era of pandemic. And now numbers and statistics, statistics are very relevant to all the disease control globally and locally as well. Now, this is very interesting that you use a very unique approach to write this book. Uh, this is, uh, I c can you pronounce this for me? The je... Uh, uh, je d'échelle. Uh, yes, <laughs> That This approach to write the book. And can you let us know what this uh, special method is all about? Um, yeah, uh, je d'échelle, if we uh, translate it into, well, it's a French word, but if we translate it into English, it's called playing with levels. So the idea for me to use this methodology or somehow put forward this methodology uh, in my book is that I don't want to say that I'm writing a global history. I'm also very careful not to say um, this is a transnational history, but I wanted to say, I wanted to emphasize that actors in different levels and when they are in different social and political contexts, how they interact with each other. So something at the local level, when it translated into national level or international level, things can change. So that's the reason for which I use this word to say that when we talk about something that is probably at a skill at the global level, we, um, we have to see um, different stories and uh, different skills. So that's what, so, um, another thing that's interesting to say is that I use 14 different archives, and these archives are actually from actors of international level, of national level, and local level. So that's the reason for which I use this word instead of global history or transnational history. But probably for those who are more considered themselves as global historian of transnational historians, I think probably they will also find something very similar to right. what they are doing. And how would you position yourself? Like, mm -hmm. if, if if people ask you, are you a global historian or international historian, <laughs> then what would you say? Um, 
I think I wouldn't say that I'm a global historian because there are so many regions in the world that I do not know a lot.、Um, but probably I would say I use transnational methods. Okay. Yeah, because well. But in the book title, you see, you also have China in Taiwan. Would you say that you're an East Asian historian as well? Yeah, I do. I do. But、um, yes, definitely. And but I would also say that I look into East Asia, but also the world. So. I think for me, what really attracts me is to look into the transfer and the transla- translations when transfer、uh, was happening, and what is transferring and what doesn't. So yeah, so I would definitely say that. But thank you for this question. Okay, now perhaps you already answered that a bit. Now this is question is now about the knowledge transfer you just talked about.、Um, Uh, you d- you don't use globalization. You don't use diffusion in well, like a lot of hi- historians of science do. But you emphasize a concept that is circulation, and you describe a lot of circuits in your book. Can you let us know what these circuits are and what circulation、uh, was formed in in what way? Yeah, thank you, thank you so much for noting this. I definitely do not use globalization and I do not use diffusion because I know that the thing is much more complicated. So that's the reason for which I actually use circuit in、uh, every chapter. So to tell a little bit more about my book and the structure is that with the first chapter, I talk about the actors, those who are setting the stage, and then. Afterwards, for each chapter is actually a circuit. So there, in each chapter, we have one public health initiative that that was using statistics, and and then how they transfer the same thing or the the same actors with their ideas about statistic about public health, how they transfer it to China, and how the Chinese their collaborators in China interact with them. And from 1914 after 1949, the story, because of the WHO, the story shifts to Taiwan. So, for each chapter, I wanted to see the transfer. So this this is the reason for which I decided for every chapter, the narrative will be from point A to point B. So that's why I talk more about、uh, circuits. So I wanted to see it's a route rather than、uh, yeah rather than something else. Okay, great. Then let's perhaps、uh, enter your book now.、Uh, actually, this is not a book about a an organization or one person. There are a lot of people in it. So, in the first chapter, that you talk about li-、uh, different players, and these people lay down the foundation of stati-、uh, statistical thinking. Who are these people? Yeah. So, I actually identify three of them. Uh, probably there are much more, but I realized that、uh, there are three trajectories are、uh, very common. So first of all, they are U.S. philanthropists. Philanthropists. Right. So those who are、um, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Milbank Malora Fund, they were、um, in the they were in the U.S. progressive era, and they wanted to do something better for the world, and they had the money to do so. So their idea is that they want something bigger than New York, than the U.S. They want something of human betterment in the world. So these are、uh, the first group of actors that I found. And then secondly, they 
they are experts of bacteriologists. So we see the bacteria, bacteriologists trained in the laboratory method, and they say, they suddenly should think, well, we can do much more in the public health um, arena. So these bacteriologists work with the philanthropists to devise public health words, um, first of all, in, uh, I would say, North Atlantic world, the New York, New York and uh, Europe, but then they uh, try to do something in China as well. And the third group, and I think it's probably the most intriguing group of this, um, of uh, among the three, it's, I would say, it's a group of missionary sons born in China. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's very interesting because this is, uh, it's very interesting because they have the cultural capacity because they were born in China. They were, they, they, they know the language. They have, they know how it works in China, the importance of network and how we interact with uh, politicians and things like that. And, and that's at the same time, they have the expertise. So the story of uh, John B. Grants, for those who are very uh, familiar with the history of public health in China, it is not a new name for you. Um, he is someone who established the Peking Union Medical College Public Health uh, Department. And he got a uh, very important uh, in the course of the first half of the uh, 20th century. And the other person is Edgar Seidenstricker. Um, he's not that well known, but he has a very, uh, a very famous sister. Uh, her name is Horbach. Uh, in Chinese, we say Seidenzhu. So she is a Nobel Prize uh, literature winner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so, so these are the people who were born in China. They got the cultural uh, capacity, and when they became teenagers, oh, they—I think it's probably in the seven, like probably at the age of twenties—they started to um, go to the U.S. or Canada to learn about public health. So, so then they got identified by this the group of philanthropists or the League of Nations Health Organization. And they started to work with them, and I think they are they are playing a very important roles because they know how to work in China. They are also attracting uh, attention of the philanthropist to China. And probably one thing that I can uh, still add a little bit on this is that they are missionary sons. So so in their I think in their family education, of course, I do not have a clear. A testimonial from them, but in their family education, we can think about they do have this humanist uh, thinking, and they think this is important to help the poor and to help those in need. So we do see this uh, continuities from uh, missionaries to philanthropists at the individual level. Yeah. Uh, why did these people decide to uh, go abroad and study in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, is what's related to like towards the end of the nineteenth century. I mean, the the Gengzi Pei Kuan, did I play a role in it? Um, actually, these are for for these two person. They they were born in China, and I don't think they are really uh, missionaries. They are missionary sons. Okay. So I don't know, like when, when they went to the U.S. for study, they are like in their early 20s. Okay. So I was presuming that probably for them, it is just 
what people did at that time. So you're born in China and then you go back to the US or Canada to get your education. Mm -hmm. And then from there you can find the other careers or to continue your careers. I think it's probably that trajectory that I was talking about. But of course, Gunsen Heikwan is a very interesting yeah, but story, but indemnities. Um, if I may go a little bit uh, far from this book, but uh, for Gunsen Heikwan, we see that the Rockefeller Foundation, they also uh, gave uh, fellowships for missionary doctors. Oh, that's, to, okay. So to, to go back to the U.S. in the 1920s and 1930s. So probably there we can see a similar story. Okay. Yeah, but it's it's not completely these two people because these two people, they become more like the public health uh, researcher administration instead of medical scientists. So it's a little bit different. Though. Right. So it's quite interesting that in history of science, we always talked about, like if you talk about the Atlantic world, we kind of will connect that the emergence of statistics thinking in epidemiology in let's say in London, <laughs> the, the, uh, like John Snow studying yeah. uh, Clara, and, uh, but you clearly, clearly talked uh, about a lot of multiple origins of uh, similar thinking, right? So I think this is uh, your first level of playing with layers, right? And so in chapter two, you talk about the language and the dialect of health sciences. I really like this metaphor. Um, what do you really mean by, is there a main language and dialects of stati uh, statistic thinking then? When I, uh, in this chapter, I talk about international list of cause of death in China and how it was translated by John B. Grant. And when I talk about translation, I talk not only about a simple translation, it's also about how to understand the Chinese wording on the street and how we referred it back to the international list of cause of uh, death. So this is something that is uh, interesting in the sense that we see that for John B. Grant, there is a language that is universal, but we cannot fit the Chinese situation directly back to the universal, but he was trying to do a, a bridge list for the Chinese situation. So there why I said it is a dialect. It is not something he claimed to be universal, but it's something he claimed to be Chinese, but comparable or understandable or um, readable for the international list. So that's why I use the word language and dialect. And at the end of this chapter, I actually talk a little bit even more, just you said, it is not only about the health statistic, it's also about the health science. So like, um, we see that for the Rockefeller Foundation, of course, science is very important. But at the same time, in the Chinese situation, they think that the Chinese, China is not the place where they can really do universal science. So that's why the uh, John B. Grant um, and his collaborator at the Rockefeller Foundation, they are more into he, I, I quote this. Um, I can quote this citation. He said, "It's not about, um, well, I forgot the the, the, the citation, but it's he, he says something that um, it is important to know what is uh, feasible in China instead of trying to find 
the missing sentence of signing a school. So there is a reason of science that is quite different when it comes to China or when they in New York. So this is what I try to show in this chapter. In the next chapter, then you talk about uh, there were two approaches in statistical thinking. The first is uh, socialist statistics. And then it seems that there is an opposite, opposite side, which is mathematical statistics, right? So is, is there any difference between the two then? And then you, there is a figure which is quite important, which is uh, Edgar Sindensticker, and who is a, uh, a very important one uh, person at the League of Nations. And he managed to harmonize statistical practices across different countries. Now, LON was a intergovernmental organization and emerging in the, during the interwar period, consisting of a lot of nation states. But it's quite interesting. We talk about the time and it, there were still a lot of colonies, mm -hmm. right? So how do you really harmonize that kind of thinking to serve different purposes in different na nation states then? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, maybe... Probably I can start with the opposition between socialist and mathematical statistics. And you are right. We see that it is two things very different. And so when we talk about mathematical statistics, it is use the probability rules to, to decide if a difference observed in two groups of, uh, of in two groups are really existing. So it is in the opposite of discrepant statistics. But this idea of we can use a sampling, a selected group to understand the whole population is contested by the socialist thinking because they think that mathematical statistics, it is, well, what I, uh, what they say, and I quote, it is a bourgeois thing. So the, it's a bourgeois uh, scientist way of discarding the people's voice. So that's why in socialist statistics, they talk much more about census, about we have to survey everything. And, and you have to count everyone in. You have to count everybody. It is no way that you can leave anyone behind. So this is the thinking that is uh, opposing this too. Um, for the question about science, uh, science record, exactly, it is much more complicated than we thought. So for a lot of people working on the League of Nations Health Organization, we well, recently, we think about League of Nations and Health Organization. Are very, it's very important in the sense of they are standardizing a lot of things. Yeah. They are standardizing economic stat, uh, economic uh, numbers. They are standardizing public health numbers. They are trying to regulate a lot of things. But if we look on the implement, implementation side, we see that it is a patchwork of discussions with different actors. Right. So they have to discuss with um, right. the ISI, the International Statistic Institute. Uh, they have to discuss with the Office International d'Hygiène Publique. I think it, we, we always use the French wording. Um, and also they have to discuss with the colonizers. They have to discuss also with local governments. So in this chapter, we see that it is a patchwork of discussion that they decide they, they have to convince people to send in their numbers and they have to ask them to do uh, something to, to, 
not just sending, like for example, in India, not just sending their numbers to London, but also send it to uh, the League of Nations. So, so, so we see that. So it 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 is uh, different layers of uh, sovereignty, and the League of Nations they do have an ambition to harmonize everything. Yeah. So. The, it's not magic. I think for your to come back to your question, the my response it's not a magic. It's not a silent striker who can do everything. But he was like constructing layers of uh, network and experts to do that. Yeah, but I'm well, I'm only I'm also interested in you as a historian when mm-hmm. you look at these two different approaches of uh, statistics mm-hmm. do they have the same result i mean or they are very different in nature by nature or or they are just something like like the same wine in different bottles oh uh, for these two methodologies i think they are very different but in well but in reality, that it is not that easy to do census on everything. No, right? It's not possible. So, when we um, look into that, if we look into the public health statistic that they were doing in the nineteen forties and nineteen uh, during the nineteen fifties in uh, mainland China, they were actually for the public health. They are still using a sampling idea, the oh, demonstration okay. idea. Yeah. So. Without really contesting this grand narrative of vital statistics should be uh, should be uh, on the census level. Yeah. So I think in China it was relatively easier mm-hmm. because there was this uh, towards the end of nineteenth century there was this Baojia system, mm-hmm. which which was a administrative system to really rely on a different, for example, like elderly in different villages or count or well or towns, mm-hmm. and then so that it's easy to really trace individuals through the system. I don't know; it did play a role in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that it because it's nineteen forty nine, so it's after that. So I think it is not that easy. It's got a huge legacy in Taiwan as well. Okay. Oh, probably this is something that I'm. We should yeah. look at after. Yeah, sure. But, yeah, because um, in the story, I do not see that. But I do know that Taiwan, um, uh, I do not know that Taiwan was selected for family planning mm-hmm. yeah. just because of the health statistics post-war years was probably relatively it good. Relied on, yeah, okay, rely on the previous works. Yeah, exactly. So okay. that's what I know. But I don't think in China... It is exactly the same. Okay. Yeah, because it's, I got a lot, like, I've, I've, I've seen a lot of testimonials to say it is not possible to do that okay. because the, because of the war and even without the war, it's really, really different. Um, it's really uh, difficult to, even with the Baojia system, it's just really difficult to let people speak honestly to you. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Okay, now, uh, next question is about application. I mean, the impl- implementation of statistical works. I mean, you talk about New York, mm-hmm. and you also mentioned Ding Xian, which is, was a very important example in your book. And then, uh, well, the entire Republican China. So, um, and you also mentioned a, a, a number of important figures, uh, including Herman Biggs and his idea. And his idea is, let me quote it. Health is purchasable. I find this is very interesting. Can you let us know what this concept implies 
and in what way Dingxian project was so important? Yeah, so Herman Bix is someone that is really frustrated because he was trying to convince the New York, uh, the the New York administration to invest in health, because his idea is that if we spend a little bit more budget, if we spend the budget on health, it will actually save the local economic because with people, um, they can w- work much more and. And instead of leaving these people to be taken care by the social work, it is much better to invest in health. So that's what he tried to do. This thing is to to say that health is purchasable, and he wanted to uh, prove that by uh, establishing a health demonstration area in uh, New York to to show that by. Giving out this budget, extra budget, it is possible to keep a huge group of population uh, safe and healthy. So uh, this is his idea, and he used it to collect numbers to uh, convince uh, the New York administrators.、Um, so the Dingshan project, it is actually very similar to Herman Bick's idea, and it is and it is not. Uh, a coincidence because the Dingshan project is、um, is actually financed by the Millbank Memorial Fund,、uh, uh, which is also the,、um, the 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 founder, the the the, the financer, well, who is also the sponsor to Herman Bick's work、okay. in New York. So you see, there's a the the the, the very similar thinking, like the、uh, philanthropic foundation will give out the first seed money, and once. It is considered to be, well, worth of it、mm-hmm. that uh, individual uh, government should take over. So, so the Dingshan story is also very interesting in a sense that it brings the idea of health economics into China. So the idea is not only about keeping people healthy, but how much can we spend and is it worth it? So, what I found interesting about Dingshan project is that. It talks numbers, but it combines numbers of health with numbers of、uh, money. So I think this is very important in this sense because then, as I said in this chapter afterwards, that this kind of calculation is taken up by、uh, the Republican China、uh, governments. Okay, thank you. So now、uh, in chapter five, we are going to look at the post-war period. And so, how do you think、um, was the work of statistics and its related report system different from the interwar period? Yeah, it's different because,、uh, first of all, the WHO are much more powerful in the sense that it covers much more、uh, territories, of course, and also It is much more ambitious in terms of collecting statistics.、Mm-hmm. So the idea is not only for the WHO; it it doesn't just want to stay as a network of epidemiological intelligence. They、right. wanted to do something bigger, and so in their public health programs, they started to collect statistics as well. So we see that with this network of statistics, it's more pervasive in project designing. We see that numbers are become much more important, and we see that the experts, when 
they have to really work with the numbers. Like for example, I can give you an example of Dingxian. At that time, the Dingxian, they, they collect numbers, but then they do not really engage with the numbers. You see that like Chen Zhiqian, the person uh, who was in charge of Dingxian, he always said that we cannot go to very precise numbers because mm -hmm. we do not have enough sources and for uh, enough resources. So for him, the importance is to collect numbers, but then it's not really important to have the right numbers. Okay. So when he tried to convince his con his convincing uh, his strategy is much it's it's much more than just numbers. It's also himself. It's also the way he use it. But for the WHO uh, period, we see that the use of numbers is much more persuasive in the sense that even though uh, the expert, even though they are the expert of tuberculosis and things like that. They had to really work out that they had to say, okay, why the BCG uh, efficiency is not as good, uh, it's not as good as thought. They have to say, oh, it is because of the project designing. It is not okay. It is so they really have to use their understanding, their public health knowledge to validate or not to validate numbers. Yes, can we say that after the Second World War, we had a lot of interventions. And for example, like we have penicillin now, and then if you want to prove certain kind of invention is, is effective, you need numbers to support that. Yes, right? yes, you, you need numbers. And then you also have to say, not only numbers, they, you also have to, um, how can I say it? It's much more, you really have to say numbers. You really have to show the numbers, but then as... Uh, as evidence. Yeah, as evidence. So, yeah. Okay. So, it's a little bit different. Mm. Okay. Now about ROC in chapter six, uh, chapter 6. I guess listeners would be really interested in learning the relationship between uh, Republic China and the WHO. And it's quite interesting that for most, almost half a century, the WHO operated against the backdrop of the uh, Cold War. And so you say that the WHO had insisted the organization maintain its purely technolic, uh, technical role, right? Also, I, I mean, the technical nature. And, but this is not true historically. Right? So what was the tension about? And so what can we learn uh, from the, the uh, global malaria eradication program that you mentioned in this chapter? Thing? Yeah, um, so the tension in this, the WHO was, was quickly considered as the US-UK bloc by the socialist countries. And, and in, well, if we look into their financial report, we see that, of course, the US was the biggest, uh, the, the biggest financial support that the WHO was really relying on. So that's the, the US is also the reason for which the WHO decided to embark on the malaria uh, eradication Eradication. program. So we, we do see that this Cold War polit uh, politics also had its way within the WHO policymaking. And this is uh, the story. But then again, that probably I can also talk a little bit about the limits of the Cold War politics in, within the WHO. It is not in this book, but there are a lot of uh, projects that is ongoing right now 
to look into, even though with this cold politics, the WHO, the fact that it's showing as a techn uh, a technical organization, yes. it actually offers some kind of platform to for collaborations between the East and the West, okay. such as the smallpox eradication program that also uh, where was, about huh? where about the smallpox? Uh, the smallpox is in the well. It started in the 1950s. Okay. And then, of course, it's fluctuated because they do not have enough money and the uh, Soviet Union re retired from the WHO. Yes. And it came back in the 1960s. And that time, they uh, they started to collaborate with the U.S. Because, well, one of the things is that the U.S. was realizing that the malaria eradication program was probably not going to work. Mm -hmm. And in the 1980, it's the I think it's 1980 that uh, the smallpox was eradicated. So it yeah. is like in today's narrative, yeah. it's not as right about eradication. I mean, the WHO is very controversial in terms of now. Actually, it quietly switched its switched its narrative of uh, malaria eradication to elimination and control towards the end of 1960s. Mm -hmm. But smallpox was another, was another different story, right? And then now we have we have polio, right? And polio we listen we we now listen to a lot of uh, we hear eradication again, with a lot of support from the Rotary. I, I guess the audience can can find quite a few other books to to look into the inside of these. Yeah. So. Probably one thing is that can we say that eradication is the ghost of the WHO that it comes? Oh, I like comes. this. Yeah, right. I like this. <laughs> right. Okay, now in the next chapter, People's Republic China is perhaps what listeners are curious about. And how did statistical data function during Mao's period? And in what ways is it related to China's contemporary public health policy and practice? I mean, this is a very timely question because we know that in the end of the 2022, what happened in China was that the, uh, the pandemic went on a, uh, a, another huge surge again, and now it's become very controversial. So what did the drastic change of COVID statistics report, uh, reporting in China, I mean, nowadays, imply? I mean, what can you... What can we learn from your book and to 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 really look into the situation in China, what is happening now? Yeah, um, it is actually a pretty uh, difficult question to answer. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think about it. And I think probably the continuities within uh, the COVID statistics and the story that I was telling in about China in the 1950s, 60s, is that the Chinese statistic reporting is really layered and not so many people know the real numbers. And I believe this is still true today. Okay. So that um, we see that, like, for example, I, and I cite BBC, he said, officially, there have only been 13 COVID deaths throughout December 2022. So we do see that uh, in terms of history of statistics, we can see that the numbers reporting in China it is really, um, how can I put it? It is not transparent. Mm -hmm. And it is something that different layers of people, they have their own ways of reporting numbers. So, you mean the bureaucracy? Yeah, the bureaucracy. Exactly. Thank okay. you for it. Yeah. So the, 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 
the bureaucracy. They are recording numbers as they advance in their politics, right. and they do want to somehow align to the expectation of the higher end of bureaucracy. Right. Okay. So I do see. It's like a campaign style of. Yeah, it's like one. Control. Yeah, it's like for example, uh, one of the most. Uh, one of the most famous story will be the a great leap forward, yeah, where right. bureaucracy is like competing to get better numbers, which is at the end of the day really uh, dissociated to the local realities. So, I do see that this layers of bureaucracies and how they use numbers to to report to the higher level instead of and then. Eventually, it's getting uh, slowly different than uh, to the local realities. So I do yeah, see that. Right. Uh, yeah. But it's, uh, I mean, now I'm reading all the numbers in China in in a very curious way. Like before the day we recorded this episode, I mean, on the 14th of January, suddenly China reported 60,000 deaths related to COVID. And what's that about then? <laughs> I really have no idea. Can right. I just say that? Suddenly a big jump. Yeah, and I think, well, as a historian, I I really don't know what it means, but probably... Let's expect your next project. <laughs> yeah, I hope they will open their archives and we can do something about that. But yeah, I think, yeah, I really have no idea, but this is definitely something that we should continue to think about how the uh, People's Republic of China's the way of uses of numbers and how they use numbers to justify their policies. Right. Yeah. yeah. So now we're living in a, uh, our world is full of statistics, full of numbers, and we use these numbers to explain our lives. Right. And in your conclusion, you say that, well, for people, that is in the field of public health, DALI is a very important parameter to measure uh, a lot of things. Um, and then you say that in the conclusion that this is controversial, but controversial in what ways? Mm-hmm. There are so many. Um, uh, there are so many contestation of DALI, and one of the things that mostly cited is about age waiting. So, in the DALI's calculations the uh, ages of 15 to 40s were given the highest relative value. So that is somehow given us idea that people with um, at the, um, people with older age, they are actually calculate less. So it is one of the controversies regarding to that. And there are also other discussion about when you say about life uh, expectancy, you are using the Japanese one or are you using from another country. So life expectancy is also something very different according to different countries or different social uh, situations. And they are also the third one. And it is about how you calculate each cause of disability. So how can you align or quantify the disability uh, into a same uh, standard that why this and that calculate differently in terms of numbers and yeah. how you decide on that. So mm-hmm. this is one of the discussion at the beginning of that is there are a lot of discussion about there are a lot of actually battles between uh, different NGOs okay. that they wanted to uh, advocate mm-hmm. for the disease they saw 
Right. Uh, they, they are evocated. Okay. So you, you see this battle as well. So, yeah. And the battle is still ongoing. Yes. Right. And I, I, I wouldn't think it will end very soon, right? And yeah. Okay. <laughs> so what is your next project about? Yeah. Um, the next project will be a little bit different. So I am starting this project of rice science and technology uh, at the University of Zurich. So my idea is to work on the international uh, international policy making and implementation, but this time I'm looking into rice. So it will be a little bit similar to the international health because there we see the story of nutrition. Yeah, and numbers still play a role. Yeah, they still be a role and the numbers are still uh, important. But then I wanted to do something even bigger. Well, I hope I can manage to do so, but it's also about agriculture. Yeah. So. So probably I can do, I hope with my team, we'll be able to do something that is more uh, comprehensive. So it's not only about health, it's also about producing food. Yeah. It's also about... And actually after the Second World War, everything was about economics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then, so I hope I can do something uh, to, to that. And with that uh, project, I hope I can also decentralize the story of Green Revolution, which is much more about the history of wheat, the history of corn, but less, a little bit less about rice. And mm -hmm. I hope that uh, we can contribute, yeah. contribute to that. Yeah. Sure. I still have a curious question. Yeah, of course. Right. Uh, what do you want uh, your readers mm -hmm. in, well, particularly those who work with numbers in disease control, I mean, for, in public health, because this is so important project in public health, to learn about from reading your book? Thank you so much for this concluding question. Um, one thing that I want to say is that um, every day in our daily lives, the specialists in epidemiological control and also other people, is that we always confront two different positions. So they are one position. It is okay, everything about numbers, they are fabricated, it's not true. Mm. And the other side of the story is that, show me the numbers. Without numbers, we cannot do any facts about right. it. it. Like, if you do not have numbers, it's not facts. So we are actually, in our modern life, we kind of like, here behind this yeah. cool hole of a position. And with my, uh, with my work, I said I wanted to show that it is okay that experts to work with numbers and to make sense of it. And I think it is, it is actually really important because we don't want, I don't know, like I'm thinking in the history, in the historical course, the next historical course will be AI or will be aerialism that where experts role in curating numbers is probably diminishing. Right. So I was hoping that for those who are uh, working on uh, epidemiological intelligence is to really make sense of their work and try probably try to communicate more and clearly about how they curate it. And I don't think expert curating numbers is something bad. It is important yeah. because the, these are the experts. They have the experience and knowledge of public health. So of course they can curate numbers and yeah. they can make sense of it and probably it can help in the policy communication is that to be clearly to find probably some kind of language that is easier for those of us 
who probably not really familiar with epidemiological intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. And we perhaps need to maintain mindful of the fact that we are also caught up in the interna international relations and, and that at the local level, level, some geopolitics as well. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So this is not the first uh, book or historical book about an international health organization. I mean, actually, you cover a few of them. Right. <laughs> so uh, there are different historians of science writing about different international health organizations, but clearly you uh, set an example of uh, coming from a very different angle. Right. So thank you, Itan, for your time. Thank you so much, Harry, for the discussion.